Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I really think Southeast Asia is the region where the sort of geographic area where Australia and South Korea's interests intersect. So that's where I think we could actually hone the bilateral relationship. You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm David Andrews. Today's podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. Today I'm joined by Dr. Michael Cohen and Dr. Lauren Richardson to discuss the Australia-Korea relationship and some key recent events in Korea's security outlook. Mike is a senior lecturer and the HDR convener at the National Security College, and Lauren is a lecturer in the Department of International Relations at the ANU. Welcome, Mike and Lauren. Thanks for having us. Yeah, great to be here. Perhaps, Lauren, to set the scene for our listeners, uh, could you tell us a bit about the Australia-Korea relationship? I mean, how important is Korea to Australia's regional outlook? Yeah, well, I think it's been become quite common to characterise the relationship as underdone in terms of its potential. I think a lot of people would expect the Australia-Korea relationship to more closely resemble the very close partnership between Australia and Japan because we're both allies of the United States. We have complementary economic systems, complementary political systems, um, and we're both you know, so-called middle powers as we, we like to um, characterise both countries. Um, and yet the relationship is not as developed um, a- as you'd expect in light of all that I think Australia views South Korea less as a bilateral partner and more as a regional partner. Um, And that's because there's been quite a few things that have hindered the development of the relationship. Um, In recent years, we can point to the kind of divergences in our strategic outlook on China. And at the same time, South Korea's foreign policy has often been very focused on the Northeast Asian region, just because it faces so many security challenges and also diplomatic challenges with Japan, um, that it hasn't really um, had the diplomatic resources to look beyond um, really any further than Southeast Asia. And although Australia is a, a partner of South Korea and um, it's actually Australia's third um, economic, third largest trading partner. Um, the relationship, yeah, really hasn't become a very close partnership. Um, having said that, um, if we look at the comprehensive strategic partnership that the two countries signed in at the end of 2021, um, it's become clear through that that most of the agendas identified in that 
really see um, Australia and South Korea as developing their relations in the context of the region. Um, the weakest aspect of the relationship is the people-to-people ties. And uh, in recent years, with the regional security environment becoming increasingly adverse, um, there's been a, a real push to sort of develop defence industrial ties um, between the two countries, but that's taken a, a bit of a blow with the Albanese's government's strategic overhaul. And also um, for bilateral cooperation on securing critical supply chains in the region, that's also been considered important. Um, but, yeah, it, it is an important partnership, but it, it's not Australia's sort of closest partner in the region, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, I haven't got a lot to add to that. One thing that comes to mind for me is that often when uh, the South Koreans um, where where there where there've perhaps been the biggest challenges is where we've sort of supported an American line often towards the North Koreans that the South Koreans have disagreed with. Looking back over the last I don't know twenty thirty years, um, so and so often when the Australians have been trying working very hard to be in, in agreement with the um with the U.S. government, whether that's Bush um, or someone else, often that has not that's been an approach to the North Koreans that the uh, South Koreans have not been supportive of, which may have put limits on the potential for growth, but in the Australia-Seoul relationship. Well, I think that points to really a very sort of, in some ways, deep and complex and, and interconnected relationship between our countries that perhaps, as you say, Lauren, is not... Um, uh, given the the profile or the stature of some of our other relationships in the region. Um, but hopefully that's what we're here to talk about and, and to dig in a bit more and learn a bit more. Uh, so perhaps, Mike, I'll turn to you now. Um, Lauren mentioned there were some divergences perhaps in the way that uh, Australia and Korea have related to China in recent years. But um, a comparison that came to mind for me is perhaps in China's reaction to both of our countries uh, is the example of economic coercion from China. Uh, which both South Korea and Australia have faced. Um, So I'll I'll leave Chinese measures against Australia to one side for the purpose of this conversation, but um, could you elaborate a bit more for us on the circumstances that led to China sanctioning South Korea recently? Indeed. So the circumstances related to uh, the South Koreans agreeing to the instalment of US uh, Terminal High Altitude Area Defence, or THAAD, essentially missile defence, which for the Americans was largely about dealing with the North Korean threat. Um, The Chinese alleged it was actually about dealing with the Chinese threat and threatened um, and inflicted um, moderate to high uh, economic sanctions and another spate of measures um, on the South Koreans. And indeed, in that sense, Australia and the South Korea and South Korea have both been on the receiving end of Chinese economic uh, statecraft. Um, like uh, the sanctions that we in Australia were hit with, I think it's safe to say those that the South Koreans were hit with uh, perhaps achieved less than the, the Chinese were hoping for. Certainly, Thad is still in South Korea, and it, it's. I wouldn't be surprised if the Chinese were thinking if they could do things again, if they could just not inflict the economic coercion on either Australia. Uh, or South Korea, because in many ways it's shown the limits of their uh, power and influence. And I wonder, I mean, maybe Lauren can comment on this, I wonder if in doing this the Chinese have actually pushed Australia and South Korea together more than they would have liked. Yeah, it's certainly um, been very interesting. Um, And I think one of the consequences of this is that we've seen a huge rise in anti-Chinese sentiment in South Korea. So there's actually a lot of public support now um, for a tougher China policy. 
And I think it, it's also possibly helped pushed, I think, South Korea and Japan closer together. Okay, because previously Japan, a lot of the the public antipathy was directed at Japan. That has cooled off a little bit and is now um, <laughs> directed more towards China. That's actually a topic we're, I think, about to turn to is the Japan-Korea relationship. But are there any established historic uh, antipathies towards China in perhaps the same way that there are towards Japan? Is that I suppose, reaching further back into Korean history? Are there any of those trends at play or is it more just focused on contemporary uh, sort of coercion and political measures that are driving those tensions? Yeah, it's it's more contemporary. I mean, there's a very long history between China and the Korean Peninsula and there are actually history problems between um, China and South Korea, but they haven't led to the the same sort of historical antipathy that we we see between um, South Korea and Japan, and I think that's partly because you know if we go back, the Korean Peninsula saw itself as part of a Confucian world order, a Sinocentric world order where China was at the top, South Korea was second, and Japan was third. Um, and I, although China has invaded South Korea like a thousand times or more um, historically, I think it was Japan's colonization of the peninsula, which lasted for many years. And it was quite a a brutal colonial (laughs) policy that that sort of sought to suppress Korean culture and Korean language. And I think that's had much more of a lasting impact on on the minds of um, Korean people, both North and South. Yeah, right. Fascinating. Uh, I think... That's actually a very useful um, segue into the next question I want to ask, Lauren, which was about the contemporary uh, Korea-Japan relationship. But I think uh, even just in general, this points to the great interconnectedness and complexity between all of these states in Northeast Asia is that there's so much historical baggage as well as contemporary politics. And if South Korea wants to take measures to protect itself from North Korean nuclear weapons, that then involves China and then there's obviously the alliance with the United States and and still the border with Russia as well so there's i mean it, it feels a bit cliched i suppose to point out this but i think perhaps for people that don't spend a lot of time thinking about northeast asian politics they may not appreciate quite how uh much of sort of a political strategic melting pot it is almost but um to to pivot as i say to the the um south korea japan relationship i mean that there there appear to be many complementarities and common interests between them. Um, and at the same time, there's often been a quite a difficult bilateral relationship. And you've pointed out some of those historical factors around colonization. Um, but Lauren, could you give us, uh, maybe expand on that a little bit, give us a bit more context to why currently the, the relationship has been a bit strained. I mean, I, I saw that uh, recently in March, I think there was a, a summit between the leaders of both countries um, and they resumed their bilateral security dialogue in April of this year. So are things back on track or is there still more to work through between those countries? Yeah, it's it's a really difficult relationship. Um, as we see in the case of Australia, South Korea, complementarities don't 
automatically lead to convergence. You have to really harness them. And in the case of Japan and South Korea, although there are a lot of complementarities, there's also a lot of factors that have um, sort of acted as obstacles, have really, you know, often undone a lot of the good work um, done at the diplomatic level to improve the relationship. And I think we can explain that in terms of there's sort of a massive fault line in the structure of the relationship, and that's because when the two countries established diplomatic ties in 1965, South Korea was under a dictatorship, and the two countries signed a treaty under that dictator, which the whole of South Korea um, was basically opposed to, um, that really just tried to put a lid on all of the colonial issues. Um, and as a result of that, when South Korea democratized in 1965, that sort of fracture in the relationship really started to grow deeper and deeper. A lot of South Korean colonial victims started to use their democratic freedoms to sue Japan and to sort of erode that treaty. And they've gradually chipped away at it over the years, which has kind of locked Japan and South Korea into this perpetual renegotiation of the past. And it goes on and on. Uh, Mike, thinking about these underlying political challenges and then how they relate to uh, sort of nuclear security and stability on the peninsula, um, obviously there's a need for collective efforts to ensure peace. And in recent years, I mean, particularly during the Trump presidency, there was a lot of interesting uh, <laughs> conversation and content to do with denuclearization de- de- and fire and fury and all sorts of things like that. Um, so, Perhaps you could expand for us a little on how these different political challenges in the region, how they uh, impact on collective efforts to achieve stability on the peninsula. I mean, have these sort of bilateral tensions, whether it's between Korea and China or, or between the Koreas or um, uh, Japan and Korea, uh, whether they have impeded efforts to restart nuclear talks, or if indeed that's even an attainable goal or um, I mean, is any kind of deal or change in the in the status quo possible, do you think? Yeah, I don't think any new deal is likely, or at least the deals that are likely are the deals we wouldn't want. Um, any, uh, and I think the main reason for this is North Korea's quite quick advance in its nuclear weapons development missiles, uh, both long range and short range, and a spate of other systems uh, all of which all of which you know threaten South Korea and Japan and and you know pull them together to some degree obviously they don't fully overcome the the legacy uh, that, that Lauren's been outlining but they um do put South Korea and Japan together to some extent um where things get further interesting is that um North Korea has I mean I think North Korea has now got to the point where the Chinese would probably prefer the North Koreans would tone it down a bit. Um, in fact, that's probably in the case for a number of years now, I think. But the Chinese have very little leverage over that. I mean, the Chinese could sort of stop the supply of food and resources to North Korea and the whole game for the Kim dynasty could be over reasonably quickly. But in, prov- in providing the life support they do to the Kim regime, it's very hard for China to sort of uh, in, in, elicit certain quid pro qu- uh, quos uh, from uh, the North Koreans. Um, so, I on the question of a um, a nuclear deal, um, I think 
were the North Koreans to show sincere interest in denuclearization, which I think is very unlikely, I think indeed the Japanese, the South Koreans, uh, the Americans, the Russians, I mean, it's hard to imagine sort of the Russians sitting at the table these days. Um, but I think all would be for that. Uh, but I think the that all that North Korea is sort of speeding ahead with its nuclear weapons program suggests that there's no likelihood of a nuclear um, agreement dealing with North Korea in the near to medium future. Where the, the one question mark on that, or the one area in which that may change, is if uh, Kim is holding out for Trump to return to the presidency um, in 2025. In which case, he may be hoping there may be another round of the nuclear summitry that we had before. But as is reasonably widely um, agreed, those two summits led to a whole lot of uh, pageantry and um, uh, lots of excitement, but nothing terribly substantive in terms of agreement. And I think the, the final agreement commits. Um, both to denuclearization, but both the North Koreans and the Americans have very different understandings of what those terms mean. The North Koreans think it's the Americans walking off the region. The Americans think it's North Koreans denuclearizing in the sense that we usually understand that word. And so, and of course, while uh, the North Koreans are engaging in this in this fanfare, their nuclear weapons program is slowly but steadily speeding ahead. And so I would guess they, I mean, it could be that they aren't holding out much hope for that, but they may be thinking at the back of their minds that if it just turns out to be the case that Trump returns, they might be in for another round of that, which they would, which the, we can argue whether that is like massively beneficial to the Kim regime or a little bit beneficial, but it's probably to some extent beneficial for them. So let's see uh, how, how that goes. Yeah, and just to add to that, um, and also circling back to this question of whether Japan and South Korea are back on track, what we've seen, and Michael just alluded um, to, is that North Korea has typically acted as a kind of glue for Japan, South Korea. Um, when the two countries, Japan and South Korea's North Korea policies are aligned, and at the moment they are aligned, they're both hardline postures. And this is quite important, I think, because under the previous South Korean administration, the Moon Jae-in government, he was obviously pursuing this rapprochement policy um, with North Korea, but that didn't align with Japan's policy, which was really to stay hardline. And at the same time, Japan and South Korea were barely on speaking terms. And I think that matters um, when it comes to getting, you know, North Korea to sort of make some agreement because Japan is part of the strategic equation and Japan was locked out of all of that summitry. Um, so I think with Japan and South Korea certainly on track to working together and coordinating their North Korea policy. Um, and if they can also coordinate that with the US and, you know, to some extent with China, it will certainly add a, a sort of lot more diplomatic pressure on North Korea, perhaps to come to the negotiating table, but that may seem a bit idealistic. <laughs> we'll be right back. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thank you. 
this disrupted world, Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. Well, I might just make a uh, slight change of course into thinking about back to sort of Korea and the Australia relationship. And Lauren, you've recently released a new research paper uh, with AsiaLink at the University of Melbourne that examines the future of Australia-South Korea ties, um, a big emphasis of which is the need for, um, as you describe, coalition building among states with shared interests in the maintenance of a stable and prosperous region and with the capacities, diplomatic, bureaucratic, economic and otherwise, to develop a rules-based order that is both open and inclusive. Um, so with all that in mind, uh, what do you see as the biggest opportunities for Australia-South Korea bilateral cooperation? Yeah, so the logic behind this paper, um, which I've worked on for a few months and which had a lot of input from Donald Greenlees and Anthony Milner um, at Asia Link is that Australia, uh, as our security environment has become increasingly adverse, it's come to see many of our partners and other countries in the region through a kind of China-centred prism. Um, and it's kind of like our close partners are those <laughs> which sort of align with our strategic posture towards China. That's why Japan looks like a really good partner in this um, environment and why countries like South Korea, it's almost like we don't know what to do with them. Um, so in this report, we try to reconceptualize um, our relationship with South Korea by pointing to the fact that the security environment is not just something we deal with through defense. We also have to deal with it through diplomacy. And there's a lot of potential for Australia and South Korea to work together, not just bilaterally, but also multilaterally um, in many of the institutions, the new institutions of the Indo-Pacific, like um, IPEF, IPEF and RCEP, and to work together to address economic security issues, which have become increasingly problematic. Um, also to work together on the um, NPT regime. And basically, um, we also looked at how Australia and South Korea can work together to support ASEAN um, processes as well in the region. So what we're kind of suggesting is that we need to be much more agile in how we deal with countries that are not necessarily aligned you know, with us on major st strategic challenges. Of course, Australia and South Korea have many shared concerns about China. We've heard about we both were subjected to China's economic coercion. Um, but at the same time, South Korea's biggest security challenge is not China. It's actually North Korea still. So that's why I'm thinking that in order to deepen Australia-Korea relations, we need to work with South Korea on their biggest security challenge, and that's North Korea's nuclear weapons program. And I don't think we can really be part of this summitry in that, but I do think we can work together under the MPT regime by trying to elevate South Korea's voice in, in that regard. We've typically worked more with Japan, but I think South Korea, Japan, Australia could be working together in, in that respect. Uh, this is just from a sort of personal anecdote perspective, but I was in Vietnam a number of years ago and struck by the number of 
big Korean flags on the sides of uh, infrastructure projects around the country, uh, at whether it's sort of metros or bridges and all kinds of things. Uh, and I think we often talk about how, at least in our immediate region, there's a lot of um, sort of overseas development assistance or, or infrastructure assistance provided by, you know, by Australia and New Zealand as well as by uh, the US and, and also Japan quite a bit. But um, where does Korea fall in the sort of um, foreign development assistance rankings? Do you have any a sense of their uh, their, their regional efforts in, in that space? Is it mostly focused on Southeast Asia? Yeah, it is actually mostly focused on Southeast Asia. There's been a big push in that region, um, particularly since the the previous administration, the Moon Jae-in's administration, um, which was conducted under his new Southern policy. Um, but I really think Southeast Asia is the region where the sort of geographic area where Australia and South Korea's interests intersect. We both have a lot of experience in, in Southeast Asia, so that's where I think we could actually hone the bilateral relationship. Um, a lot's been made about South Korea unveiling a new Indo-Pacific strategy, but I don't see them radically remapping their the sort of regional focus. I think Southeast Asia is going to continue to be a major focus. Um, South Korea, I think since most of most of its tourism is directed at, at Southeast Asia, and um, just last year they celebrated a big anniversary of their diplomatic relations with Vietnam. Yeah, so the, the ties there are very deep. And of course, I, mean, I feel we we can't pass up a Australia South Korea podcast without mentioning the wonderful world of MICTA, uh, which also involves Indonesia, of course. So Mexico, Indonesia, South Korea, Turkey, and Australia the the wonderful great he- great heights of multilateralism. So perhaps there's an avenue for some Southeast Asian connections with Indonesia as well. But I'll I'll leave that to one side for the time being. Uh, Mike, if I could uh, focus on another bilateral, perhaps parallel between um, Australia and South Korea, and, and a potential area of interest is that of submarines, nuclear-powered submarines. Um, and as our listeners will be aware, uh, Australia has plans to acquire several American-built nuclear-powered submarines in the next sort of decade or so, and before subsequently transitioning to the new AUKUS design shared with uh, Britain's Royal Navy. And there's off the back of that, there's been plenty of speculation about whether other countries might seek to acquire nuclear-powered submarines of their own now that Australia's sort of broken the taboo for non-nuclear weapon states with nuclear-powered submarines. Um, and, and often South Korea is mentioned high on that list of, of possibilities. Um, do you see that as a uh, likely course of action? And, and if so, what impact would that have on uh, stability on the Korean Peninsula and across Northeast Asia generally. Yeah, I think uh, South Korea is certainly um, a possible contender for seeking um, nuclear-powered submarines. After all, I think South Korea is the only state that has submarine-launched ballistic conventional missiles and not nuclear weapons. So there's another thing that South South Korea has that is the only um, non-nuclear state uh, to have. I am probably – I think – I'm probably a bit more worried about uh, South Korea and its pub- the pub- high public opinion preference for nuclear nuclear weapons, actually, um, which, as Lauren Sukin's work, who we were at Seoul with, um, testifies for much longer than I had realised, sort of 10, 15 years, uh, you know, public opinion survey after public opinion survey shows that I think three out of four South Koreans favour uh, South Korea developing nuclear weapons to deal with the North Korean nuclear menace. 
And we can say, well, it's a public opinion survey. Do they really? It's, it's, do they really know what they're signing up? What they're saying yes to? And in in one sense, they don't. They aren't fully these these people, as most general publics, are not fully aware of what you know managing and uh, running um, and maintaining a, a nuclear arsenal involves. But it's very telling to me that as you know, throughout a number of different uh, leaders. As North Korea's nuclear program has ramped up, this South Korean uh, public preference for nuclear weapons um, hasn't gone away, and so uh, this. So, so where that goes, I think will be a very big question. And I'm just as concerned about that the South Korean nuclear question, if not maybe a little more concerned than the sort of South Korean nuclear powered uh, submarine question. So I think, I think, and to your point around a sort of public opinion survey, I think after a while trends do perhaps tell you something. They're not just isolated surveys. It's not just 10 people once a year or whatever. It, it's a it's a pattern and that suggests something. And while the intricacies might be a little bit beyond the average respondent, I should think that given their proximity, uh, there's sort of the lived experience of facing a hostile nuclear armed state. Uh, and, and I suppose many people want Everyone has to spend time in national service as well, don't they? So there's sort of a, perhaps a, a greater familiarity within parts of the South Korean community than in equivalent countries overseas uh, that lends itself towards that. But um, a, on, on a related note, uh, there's been a lot of conversation lately around um, the US deploying uh, nuclear armed submarines and, and or bombers to Korea. Uh, that's only quite recent, as I understand The Washington it. Declaration. That's right. So could you perhaps tell us a little bit more about that and how this uh, – is that meant to uh, sort of assuage concerns within South Korea around acquiring weapons? Is it unrelated? How do they I, fit together? I think it is. Um, I think this is largely about persuading the South Korean leadership and the South Korean public that the Americans have their backs. And the reason this is important and, and, and challenging for the Americans is that the, the South Koreans are aware that the North Korean nuclear missile program is now at a point where we can still debate how sophisticated it is, but I think more and more people would accept that North Korean can target the US. So, you know, can the North Koreans target reliably Trump Tower or the Pentagon? Well, there's a growing consensus. Yes, they can. The, the big challenge has always been missile reentry, so they can get an ICBM uh, with a nuclear payload into outer space. But can they sort of bring the thing back into Earth without the thing just burning up on reentry? And to be fair, I think the jury, strictly speaking, is still out there. But the question is, who wants to sort of risk? I think that it's becoming increasingly safe to assume the North Koreans can do this. And so, if that's true, any conflict on the Korean Peninsula, the South Koreans know the North Koreans will use that capability to war and threaten the Americans off with targeting the US, which leaves the South Koreans to deal uh, with the North Koreans on their own. And so if that's true, then the incentive to develop nuclear weapons becomes very uh, real. And I would argue, you know, almost reasonable, um, at least for deterrence. And so the Washington Declaration is an attempt by, perhaps in this sense, beleaguered Biden administration to assure the South Koreans that no, the Americans actually will have have their back, and that any in any conflict, the Americans will uh, intervene with whatever is required to deal with the North Korean threat. I am a bit worried about it because if you look closely at what the Americans are committing to do, I suspect that 
Almost certainly, the Americans have got submarines submerged in and around the Korean Peninsula, observing what the North Korean submarines are doing anyway. Um, and uh, B-52 bombers have already passed the Korean Peninsula many times. And so what they're actually, they're really sort of making public something that for the most part they've been doing in private anyway, which to me says they're really, this is all about the South Korean public opinion and convincing them that the Americans will have their back. But to the extent that the South Korean public reasons this way and says, look, this is the best you can do, something that you're pretty much already doing anyway, that tells us that actually you're not really committed to do that much, which may push public opinion exactly in the direction which the Americans don't want it to go. South Korea comes under the U.S. nuclear umbrella and extended nuclear deterrence, it's kind of invisible, right? You don't really see that umbrella. So I think of these nuclear-armed submarines just as a way to provide some sort of visible reassurance um, and strengthening of extended nuclear deterrence. Um, Just on this question of South Korea going nuclear, even though there is a lot of public support, it's it's hard to imagine that that will really, at the end of the day, factor into the government's decision to go nuclear in the same way because it is a very high politics security issue. I think it will be really the US's opinion and the negotiation with the US because mm. it could have really significant implications for the US willingness to defend South Korea or to the terms of the alliance. But it does matter. I think the public, I mean, just think of AUKUS, right? That just came out of nowhere. We're doing this whether you like it or not, guys. We need to do it. You know? Exactly. <laughs> Believe us, right? This is often how high security, high politics sort of security issues are, decisions are made. Um, but I think the public opinion matters in South Korea because as we know, South Korean society is very contentious. If they're unhappy with the US and the US alliance, they'll protest. There'll be more protests, anti-base protests, anti-US protests, and that will be a, a big headache for the US. Mm. Mm. Perhaps one of the uh, the benefits then is not so much in influencing the decision, but at least in giving the political space to have the internal conversations or to sort of put some of that pressure back onto the Americans and say, well, you know, the, the public, they, they want a certain outcome and, uh, you know, w- what are you going to do to help us sort of balance that out? So there's, there's two further points on this. One, so I, I fully agree with you, Lauren, that, um, you know, the Americans are going to be crucial and, you know, what, you know, ultimately when, if the South Koreans do this, they will, you know, be doing it, looking to the Americans and perhaps factoring in a world in which there's no more alliance, which, you know, may, let's look at the future of the Indo-Pacific and hope that, um, that doesn't come to pass. I think all of us would, all of us would agree it's, it's, it's an important and, and good alliance. So some interesting research by, um, Alex Debs and Nuno Montero suggests that one critical factor for states to get nuclear weapons is to have a sort of superpower or otherwise more powerful ally slash patron that can deter any others from attacking them. So, for example, the classic worry we would have with South Korea developing nuclear weapons is that the North Koreans would attack any South Korean facility. So in the India-Pakistan case, both have sort of targeted each other. In the South Korean case, the Americans wouldn't want them to have nuclear weapons, but the Americans can also, whether they realize it or not, deter North Korean attacks against this outcome that they don't want. And so you can argue that in that sense, the the presence of the of this alliance actually can work towards a nuclear, nuclear, South Korean nuclear arsenal, just as it can sort of work the other direction. Um, and then secondly, you know, on, on Lauren's point, like the thing about AUKUS, you know, it was very high profile 
you know, 12 people knew about it, suddenly overnight, Australia goes from having French conventional boats to AUKUS nuclear-powered submarines. And I think a big challenge now for Australia is to ensure that there won't be – that others are, I believe there won't be a second uh, quick turnaround to a much more um, potentially uh, dangerous model. Similarly, I think many could worry that however – whatever the South Koreans talk, um, if South Korea does go nuclear, it could well be that you have this announcement out of the blue that suddenly the, the South Koreans are going um, – uh, down this down this road that involves particular submarines or particular weapons that's been very high very um involving a very small number of high profile individuals i think the uh the south korean case when it comes to submarines particularly i think points to some of the real uh sort of technological benefits of a nuclear powered submarine in this sort of instance and that this is one of the arguments that's been made at length in the AUKUS case has been that of course, they don't need to surface. They don't need to, to refuel. They can be undersea for months at a time. And uh, as you say, my career already has SLBMs. They have that capability, but they're on conventionally powered submarines that will still have to resurface and can be tracked more easily and things. Uh, and I think their current capabilities are based off a sort of land-based cruise missile with about 500-kilometer range. Um, and if you put... 10 or 12 of them on one of their largest submarines at present, but it could stay underwater almost indefinitely. Um, that That is sort of the, the definition of a secure first or second strike capability, which I think when there's sort of the the inherent vulnerability as the as the defensive side, you might say, in the conflict. And with we, we always talk about the, the masses of North Korean just regular tube artillery just across the border that, that might be sort of fired at Seoul at a moment's notice. It, it's certainly an instance where you can see there's a real military rationale behind it. Uh, it's not – whilst it might be speculative at this stage, it's not without cause perhaps. Yeah. I mean, so there's a couple of challenges. One, who, if, if, if the South Koreans are going to go down this road, where do they get the systems from? Um, well, you know, there's, so there's six states that have them. China and Russia are two. The US and Britain are another two. And India and France are another two. And so who have the Americans done this with before? Well, the British in the late 1950s and the Australians a few years ago. That's it. Um, and so the fact that the uh, – Americans have not have, I mean, I would assume that given that AUKUS is now a few years old, the South Koreans will have already said, so how about it? Um, and I can only assume that the South Koreans are going to have to assure, given that they face North Korea and we don't, and we've already had to work very hard to assure the US and others that will maintain our nuclear non-proliferation obligations. Think about how hard that will be for the South Koreans, uh, given the North Korean threat. So I can see how the Americans might be, you know, we see how this would be beneficial for you, uh, but ultimately they may not be willing to take the risk. I'll, I'll wrap things up there, but even this conversation at the end now, I think, is a really great example and a reminder, perhaps, to people in Australia that there's a lot more going on in uh, security politics in Asia beyond China and Taiwan, and that just because we've moved beyond fire and fury doesn't mean that the challenges on the Korean Peninsula uh, or Northeast Asia have gone away. They're still as big and large and possibly, if it comes to a nuclear-armed South Korea, even larger than they were before. So um, I think I appreciate both your time and all the, the insights you've given us, and hopefully our listeners can take away from this uh, a, a much better understanding of some of those security dynamics and how Australia fits in. So, Lauren and Mike, thanks so much for joining us on the National Security Podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks, David. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.